So first of all, since we last met, a uh, few little world events may have taken place. And Alec and I just wanted you to know, I mean, we don't want to sort of hijack, you know, uh, 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 seen speakers' time and you know, sort of presence here, and then talk about the Trump election. But as always, this is and this will be a very safe space to talk about um, any sort of anxieties or vulnerabilities you may be feeling uh, at a time like this. I mean, there's a great deal of anxiety. We were, we were, Alec and I, we were talking about how skittish our own academic friends are, sort of, you know, both sides of the pond. Um, um, and, and in the wider world. So, you know, this continues to be a space where we can, we try to blur the lines between um, the ivory tower and, and the world that we all have to kind of, you know, in a way inhabit when we get out of it. So, that's sort of a, um, a kind of really a, a note of assurance, a reassurance from eloquence and uh, so it's a tremendous pleasure and honor to um, introduce our speaker today, um, Carol Clarkson, who's Professor of uh, Modern English Literature at the University of Amsterdam. Um, Carol is a preeminent uh, scholar of um, Jane Kutsia, but that is not the only thing she does. The, her work uh, kind of spans um, a, kind of a wide range of topics, including South African culture, the politics of reconciliation, Law and literature I was very fascinated to see, you know, the ways in which she had explored, you know, the the kind of uh, intersection of law and literature, um, and um, and in the Kutsia work, you know, what what really distinguishes her um, in a very sort of you know hypertrophic field is kind of her very uh, singular use of uh, linguistic theory and and philosophy to talk about uh, the novels and the thought of Jane Kutsia. Uh, so I'll mention uh, Carol's books. I mean, there are numerous articles as well, but I'll mention the two books, uh, from one of which she will be presenting um, her paper today. You know, it's, it's sort of a movement away from her last book, but it's still sort of connected to it. Yes. The umbilical cord is still sort of not entirely severed. So the, 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 the first book I want to mention was, you know, James Kutsia, Counter Voices, a, a very important book which came out in 2009 and had a second edition in 2013. Um, this uh, won the UCT Meritorious Publication Award. Um, and the second book is called Drawing the Line Toward an Aesthetics of Transitional Justice. So that's the book here. And not only has it garnered uh, very um, kind of warm reviews, it has also been shortlisted for two prizes, you know, South African Academy of Sciences Humanities Book Award and the UCT Book Award. So we wish um, Carol, all the best. You know, hope you go on to win both the prizes, and we also sort of <laughs> extend you. you a very warm welcome from the postcolonial uh, seminar series. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, my thanks go to Anke and to Elika for inviting me to speak here. It's a great honor to be here in Oxford. And thank you all for coming. It's always very moving to me to see people coming to listen to what I might have to say. And as Anke pointed out, um, I will be basing this talk on the book Drawing the Line. Um, and I, I will just need to sketch out the context of this book before I go on to what I want to speak about tonight. <coughs> but I am exploring things that take me a little bit beyond this book, so I would be very grateful um, for any input or I'm hoping for some conversation and juicy ideas 
so that I can take my own work further beyond um, drawing the line. And if I were pressed to give a more specific title to my, and a slightly more expanded title to my talk tonight, it would be Sensory Fields, Subjective Commitment in a Time of Transitional Justice. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is to make an argument for the value of subjective commitment in a time when of transitional justice, particularly in the context where law is supposedly impartial and blind. Um, I'm making an argument for partiality. And one of the things that has been very interesting to me in recent times is to see how constitutional court judges in South Africa have been making very explicit arguments for, the, for subjective engagements in all sorts of uh, aspects of the law, from the drafting of the constitution to coming to judgments. And in this appeal for a subjective commitment, I feel that the law and the arts are coming ever closer together. So it's more important, I think, to develop an aesthetic discourse in a time of transitional justice. And so that's really what this book was about. So um, if I can just um, put a little bit of groundwork for drawing the line, so that what I'm going to say tonight makes a little bit better sense. And the first thing that I want to stress is the use of the word aesthetics. Now, the subtitle of this book is Toward an Aesthetics of Transitional Justice. And the trouble with that word aesthetics is that we can associate it in that colloquial sense with uh, um, an appreciation of the beautiful. And we can see some, you know, the assumptions can be particularly in the political context in South Africa that aesthetics are the domain of a social elite and the art and all of these kinds of things. But the way in which I use aesthetics in throughout this book is by going back to the ancient Greek use of the word, aesthesis meaning lived, felt experience, knowledge as it is obtained through the senses. And one of the originary meanings of aesthetics that I found in, um, by trawling through dictionaries and dictionaries um, is one of these originary meanings is the science of the conditions of sensuous perception. So my question in this book was, in what ways is a social setting calibrated so that some people or other animals or things are seen or heard? So this is the stress on knowledge through the senses. What is seen? What is heard? What is valued as sig significant, while others, others may not be? And the question I was asking in drawing the line is, what does it take to recalibrate the settings so that what has been unseen or unheard or devalued before can now be perceived to be worthy, worthy of attention? And I think it's in this context that we begin to appreciate that an aesthetic conversation could be useful in thinking through questions of social justice. And one of my touchstones, <laughs> no, that's quite all right, let me 
Let me wedge myself out here. Um, so one of my theoretical touchstones in drawing the line was the work of Jacques Rancière. And he, he uses the term aesthetic acts as, and I'm quoting from Rancière here, as configurations of experience that create new modes of sense perception and induce novel forms of political subjectivity. Now, I didn't speak so much about the subjectivity part of it in, in this book, but this is where <coughs> um, I'm looking at things now. And he speaks about this field of sensory perception as a distribution of the sensible. That's the English translation. In French, it's le partage du sensible. And of course, sensible here refers to that which is available to sensory perception. But the other thing that I wanted to do in this book is not just to take European theories and philosophies and then apply them to the context in southern Africa. What I wanted to do was to create a dialogue between um, uh, Western and perhaps some other indigenous or local forms of knowledge or cultural practice in South Africa to see, well, what does a South African context have to contribute towards thinking through these questions of community or questions of social justice. So the word partage, for example, was particularly interesting to me as Rancière uses it, and Jean-Luc Nancy is the one then who made it famous. Um, partage in French, it has con connotations of division and sharing, distribution, participation and belonging. And um, when I read all of this, I was immediately put in mind of Desmond Tutu speaking about the indigenous philosophy, African philosophy of Ubuntu in South Africa. And um, he, he, and uh, some of what Tutu was saying in his book, No Future Without Forg Forgiveness, resonated for me in extraordinary ways with Jean-Luc Nancy. So you see here a dialogue between Western and, um, and African ways of thinking. And Tutu has this to say. It is not, I think, therefore I am. This philosophy of Ubuntu, this communitarian philosophy, it says rather, I am human because I belong, I participate, I share. So at this point, juncture then, I was looking at, well, what are these divisions and sharings of these sensory fields, and what would it take to change them? How do those contribute towards thinking towards a more just future? So, um, so I take an aesthetic event then, not just to be the paintings hanging in a gallery or the artworks, but any form of cultural production that brings about a shift in one's perception of one's standing in relation to others. So in what ways and under what conditions do these aesthetic acts lead to a different way of perceiving the relation between the actual and the possible, say? Or to a radically different appreciation of what counts as perceptible or intelligible or legitimate in a social <coughs> order? 
And here I, I'm referring to some of the judges in South Africa. I noticed that this word perception, in the sense of seeing and understanding, um, also becomes really important. So Ivan Mokoro, who was one of the first of the constitutional judges in South Africa, she foregrounds this notion of perception in political thought. And again, referring to this African philosophy of Ubuntu, maybe I should just write that um, in case people don't have it. Um, this Ubuntu. Um, so referring to that, um, uh, uh, she says, Ubuntu is a world view. And so you can see this, this link to the, you know, the visible, the view a determining factor in the formation of perceptions which influence social conduct. And so what interested me in this book was the context in which certain acts or artworks or buildings or encounters by creating a new field of perception have the potential to bring about shifts in the way a community delineates itself in terms of what it perceives to be significant or even noticeable. So this, so then, so, so running throughout the book, this aesthetic, this aesthetic understanding brings us to our senses and it draws attention to the nuances of different modes of representation, enabling us to think and to question and recalibrate our perceptions of what is salient or legitimate or meaningful. Now, it's at the level of the materialization of thoughts and ideas in writing, in speech, in other forms of cultural production, that we're able to recalibrate the settings that have traction on our thoughts and ideals. And a shift in our modes of representation within given contexts has the potential to affect social perceptions of what can be seen and heard, of what counts, of what matters. And these perceptions delineate the ambit of personal, political and cultural commitments, our margins of exposure of one to the other. And so this is why I think that aesthetic discourses have a, have a critical role to play in thinking through towards a more just future. So that's really what I was looking at in drawing the line. And I was also um, making the argument there that the abstractions of reason or that the discourses of philosophy and um, politics and even the law on their own are not enough to bring about these recalibrations that I've been speaking about. And um, they're not, on their own, these discourses don't quite take account of what people can see and hear and feel and hence perceive in the sense of seeing and understanding. And so this now brings me to, after that little preamble, brings me to what <laughs> I want to explore now tonight. And um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, if we have assumptions that the law or justice is blind and or impartial, um, 
the argument tonight as well, what about the case for subjectivity, for partiality in the law um, as a way of working towards questions of social justice? And so I'll be speaking about various texts. Um, so I'll be referring to legal judgments, critical essays, novels, lectures, artworks, by some leading people in South Africa, writers, judges, legal theorists, and um, to see the ways in which they, in, and in diff quite different ways, but they're making this argument for these subjective commitments. But first, we just need to go back to Plato for a moment. And <laughs> Socrates and his friends in the Republic are trying to figure out what justice is. And they decide that the best way to figure that out would be to imagine what an ideal just state would be like. And of course, they decide to banish all the artists and the poets, famously, although you can also go to the laws and find revision of um, some of what uh, uh, um, and other dialogues too. So, so book 10 of the Republic is not the only place that Plato speaks about the artists. But the reasons in the Republic for banishing the artists are quite interesting. Once you admit the sweet lyric or epic muse, pleasure and pain become your rulers instead of law and the rational principles commonly accepted as best. In the language of the Republic, poetry has no serious value. The arts constitute representations at the third move from reality. What is represented in a painting or a poem is not the truth itself or even the thing itself but merely a subjective representation on the part of the <coughs> poet or the artist. And further, these representations are easy to reproduce <coughs> without any knowledge of the truth, because they're appearances and not realities. So Socrates and his interlocutors <coughs> are insistent that the poets know nothing, that their work has no serious value, but this comes in the teeth of feeling threatened by the poets and having to order their banishment from the just states. Because poets and artists offer subjective views. They play on your emotions and your sensory perceptions. They threaten the values of rationality and reason, which are taken to be the best way of creating and maintaining justice in the state. So you see there um, a very clear alignment, reason and rationality are associated with justice and affect the senses, emotions are the very things that will disrupt it. So, but now what, <laughs> what I want to do is make a leap from Plato to the Constitutional Court in South Africa and the way in which I'm bridging that leap is by reference to Bernard Williams, the analytic philosopher in his book, Ethics and the Limits of Philosophy. And Bernard Williams offers a very thought-provoking account of the limits of analytical modes of addressing Socrates' question of how to live. His book is not only about ethics, but about modes of philosophical inquiry. 
And one of the striking things that Bernard Williams says in his book is he says, practical thought is radically first personal. It must ask and answer the question, what shall I do? Yet, under Socratic reflection, we seem driven to generalize the I and even to adopt from the force of reflection alone an ethical perspective. And so this is the difficulty for Bernard Williams. Practical thought is first personal, what shall I do? But the way Plato Socrates presents matters, we have to generalize, abandon a first person's perspective. And a characteristic feature of moral philosophy in the analytic tradition for Williams is its predilection for generalizing and, ab and, and making an abstract mode of inquiry. He goes on to speak about the need to trust deliberating from what I am. And he says this deliberating from what I am rather than the obsessional and doomed drive to eliminate a subjective point of view in much contemporary ethical philosophy. Now, just using Bernard Williams as the bridge between the Republic and the Constitutional Court, it seems to me that many of the constitutional judges in South Africa are speaking in very compelling ways for the importance of deliberating from who I am rather than eliminating um, a subjective standpoint and um, focusing on the objective alone. So, and so increasingly what comes through as I'm reading judgments and various accounts is this deference to rationality, reason, the idea of, imparti of impartiality is seen to be inadequate. And in fact, the introduction of the subjective and an attention and attentiveness to the fields of sensory perception usually associated with the arts in these lawyers um, and judges becomes vital in thinking through, um, in the thinking through that has gone into creating the constitution of South Africa and a more democratic state. So the first person I want to focus on is L.B. Sachs. And L.B. Sachs, just a few days ago, his most recent book has come out. So I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but I'm very proud because Alex Dodd, who helped him with the editing and writing, um, she got her PhD just a year or two ago. She was one of my students. She wrote a very interesting thesis on contemporary revisitings of Victorian imagery and iconicity in South African art. So very interesting. But I'm sure I don't need to tell you the details about L.B. Sachs, but just in case, um, he has, a, he has a, an outrageously simplified <laughs> few words about L.B. Sachs. He was a human rights activist. He was imprisoned um, for treason. He was in exile for a while. He was in a bomb blast in Mozambique, which blew off his arm. And in 1988, he returned to South Africa, working closely with Mandela. And L.B. Sachs was one of the first of the 11 constitutional judges in South Africa. Now, the book that I'm referring to of L.B. Sachs's tonight is the one called The Alchemy, The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law. 
And this book is extraordinary because he gives an account of his judgments and he brings in all these personal anecdotes and things that you would think, well, you know, surely this has no place in the law. But he says, he writes things like this, I could not resist including a section on the role of laughter in a democratic society. He goes on to ask, does the law have a sense of humor? And then he says, humor is one of the great solvents of democracy. It is an elixir of constitutional health. He goes on at another place in his book, he writes, I joke, therefore I am. And he spends a lot of time writing about parody, about rhetoric, about jokes, about Kant. He reminds us that judgments in the United States are referred to as opinions. And um, then once at a lecture at the University of Toronto, uh, he opened his talk like this. He said, every judgment I write is a lie. That's how he opened his talk. It certainly captured the attention of the students. And then he goes on to say, I explained that the falsehood lay not in the content of the judgment, which I sought to make as honest as possible, but in the discrepancy between the calm and apparently ordered way in which it was read and the intense and troubled jumping backwards and forwards that had actually taken place when it was being written. I felt I needed to s dispel the notion induced by the magisterial tone we judges conventionally adopt that judgments somehow arrive at their destination purely on rational autopilot. And he goes on um, to speak about Justice William Brennan of the US Supreme Court. He speaks about an interplay of forces, this internal dialogue of reason and passion <coughs> did not taint the legal process, but in fact, was central to its vitality and particularly true in constitutional interpretation. And on many of his judgments, and many of them have become legendary, he, he says no Cartesian reasoning had in been involved in its creation. <laughs> and um, carries on speaking more about passion, about rhetoric, about the about um, the unusual, the bizarre, the threatening, and all of these things that we would like to exclude from the law, but he goes on to speak about how much part they are of his work. Now I'm referring to Justice Zach Yacoub, and he was also one of the original 11 constitutional court judges. Um, he became one in 1998. And he was involved in the activities of the Natal Indian Blind and Deaf Society and the South African National Council for the Blind. So he, he was also um, very much in, involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. And it's important to register that um, Yacoub became blind when he was a, a very young child himself. And so, so Justice Yacoub is blind. <coughs> and if 
in Plato, we have this alignment between the justice, between justice and the truth. Yacoub has radical ideas. And the whole way through his work, he's drawing a distinction between truth and reasonable doubt. And he says outrageous things. He says, judgments are storytelling contests, he says. So, and he goes <laughs> on to say this, and I'm quoting now, he says, trials and judges, and maybe you don't understand this, don't decide the truth. We don't know what the truth is, and judges never know what the truth is, and you can never know at the end of a case whether the judge's conclusion has resulted in a true finding or not. What judges do in certain cases is that in criminal cases they look at all the evidence and determine whether the state claim has been established beyond a reasonable doubt. He insists that judges are not determiners of the truth. They weigh evidence. In other words, he says, um, well, he speaks about this reasonable doubt, reasonable probabilities. He says, judging is a human process. Judging is a process where it takes place and is determined by a whole range of different factors. Um, and it's a difficult and complex business, he goes on to say. Um, you're required to be impartial and independent, but he says it's never an objective process. It, and even further, it never should be an objective process. Because judging in South Africa is not all about applying points of law. Judging is about humanity, is about human beings. And therefore, it is absolutely essential for a judge to bring his or her subjectivity and his or her own humanity into the judging process. Because essentially, we are judging human beings and humanity is essential. So now at last we can change to a slide, the second slide. So, um, and here um, we have, um, we have Justice Yacoub and he's quoting, he's quoting Cardozo, so, um, and speaking about these things here. And um, the reason that I've put this up as a slide is because um, when Justice Yacoub was giving, when he was giving the paper that I attended and he had a, he had a device, of, he is blind and he was giving his talk but he had a device on which he could read at the same time that he was giving a talk and when he wanted to quote from his text then he would switch this little device on and when I was um, working with the transcript of his speech the quotations came out in this entirely different font so you could see exactly which were the parts that he was reading and quoting because they came out like this so I just liked it because it looked so different as well and um, you can imagine the performative force of his giving a talk and saying this to us we may try to see things as objectively as we please. Nonetheless, we can never see them in any eyes except our own. 
deep in our consciousness are other forces, the likes and the dislikes, the predilections and the prejudices, <coughs> the complex of instincts and emotions and habits and convictions which make the person, whether she or he, be a litigant or a judge. <coughs> so, um, So he speaks about this inclusion of humanity in making these judgments and he stresses the role of narrative as well. So he says that there is a narrative there, he goes on to say. The narrative is changeable. Judicial persuasion is there. Judicial persuasion is also changeable. And I'm quoting now, Art is one of the ways in which we can change that narrative and ensure that society can be extremely different from what it is now. So again, this emphasis um, both of L.B. Sachs and Jakub, judgments are not separable from rhetoric, from the arts, all of these sorts of things. And um, th then when I was looking again at uh, Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom, um, this was also one of the things that he was stressing when he was in prison. Prison is designed to break one's spirit and destroy one's resolve. He goes on to say, to do this, the authorities attempt to exploit every weakness, demolish every initiative, negate all signs of individuality of subjectivity, all with the idea of stamping out that spark that makes each of us human and each of us who we are. Now, um, in the interests of handwriting, and I always love handwritings, I just want to show you this. This is a book that a friend of mine has and who is an architect, but I just wanted to show you Nelson Mandela's writing, handwriting. Um, and Dave was very pleased that we would sh show a copy of his book. Um, and I'll come back to a question of handwriting again. Now, what I want to move on to is the question of art in the Constitutional Court. So when the Constitutional Court was built in South Africa, um, or, or refurbished from the old fort, um, where Nelson Mandela had been held prisoner, L.B. Sachs and Yvonne Mokhoro, who was the first black woman to serve as a constitutional court judge, they were given a budget of 10,000 rand for decor. That's all, for <coughs> 10,000 rand. Now, at, if you just work that back into pounds, there used to be a time where, where the pound was, where the rand was 25 rand to the pound. So I'll leave that to your maths to sort out. So 10,000 rand for decor. Um, and the Constitutional Court opened in 2004. Um, and so what L.B. Sachs and, um, and Yvonne Mokhoro decided to do, they blew the entire budget for decor on one artwork. So this is the one that they um, chose. Um, and so, <laughs> so this is Joseph Ndlovu's tapestry, and um, the name of the work is Humanity. And um, 
Then what they did is they decided to ask artists to do and people to donate artworks to the Constitutional Court. And um, they, what, they wanted, what they wanted to do, um, that, so they asked uh, p very famous artists, but what they also wanted to do was to incorporate artworks into the entire fabric of the building and design into the entire fabric of the building from the shutters on the glass panels to the nosings on the stairs, which I'll speak about in a little moment again, um, to aspects of the lighting, everything. Um, this is one of the most famous of... Um, so, oh, well, let's just show you a few more um, pictures. Um, so, yes, so now I can show you a few more pictures. So you can see here the panelling on the door. Um, I think it's very interesting. You can see the new building, the glass building, but still reflecting parts of the old fort, um, which have been maintained. So the prison where people were held um, before, even the carpets are individually designed. So carpets all over <laughs> in the Constitutional Court, some of them are based on paintings. So carpets, colorful, colorful carpets. He has the library in the Constitutional Court. Um, and keeping aspects of the old prison um, in the new Constitutional Court building so, um, so that people could appreciate that the Constitutional Court was also built on foundations of terrible injustice and suffering and still to keep a record of that. Because usually the approach in South Africa is just to raise everything to the ground and start from scratch but here everything maintained. So you can still see the prison cells number four. I think it's the one in the middle, is the one where Mandela was held. Um, and now this painting, um, or this artwork, well, it's actually a triptych, is by Judith Mason, and it's called The Blue Dress. But even since I first started drafting this talk, things have changed since then. <laughs> um, L.B. Sachs used this work as the cover for his book, The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law. And the story about this, this artwork is this, is that a certain, this is, but this is also what has changed. So um, it's a tricky thing to deal with. So here is the story. Pilan Dwandwe had been smuggling information for the ANC. She was captured by the South African Defence Force, stripped naked and questioned. And she made a makeshift covering for herself out of a plastic bag and refused to give any information and was shot. And Judith Mason, the artist, went and um, found she made a beautiful dress out of plastic ba bags as a memorial to her. So there are two paintings of a scene very um, familiar to all South Africans, and that is of litter, 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 blown up against the fences and the bushes. So plastic bags blown by the wind against wire fences. So she made two paintings um, of litter and this dress on the fence, and she wrote a poem on the dress. Um, and so the words on the dress read this. 
Memorials to your courage are everywhere. They blow about in the streets and drift on the tide and cling to thorn bushes. This dress is made from some of them. But um, one, one of my PhD students is the curator of the artworks at the Constitutional Court in South Africa. Her name is Stacy Forster. And um, she, in fact, I wonder, yes, there she is. So there are the two paintings and the actual dress. So Stacy Forster, but apparently the story is not true. And it has raised all sorts of questions. Does, because something is revealed as a fiction, does it invalidate it as telling some truth of a society? Should the dress be removed and taken down? Or is even things like ideals of justice and human dignity, if they're built, built on fictional foundations, is that reason enough to dismiss them? So these are the very difficult questions about um, art and truth and justice. Um, Kutsia writes in one of the essays in Giving Offense, he says that ideas like human dignity, he says these are social constructs. They're not innate, innate they're creations. And he says, but actually, or, or an idea of charity, he says these are ideas that people, and values that people have had to be very, have had to elaborate. And he says, but um, he says, these fictions may be necessary for a just society. So an idea, an ideal of dignity may be necessary, even if you expose it as fiction afterwards. So I think this is, these are some of the things going on here. Now, I just want to speak for a moment about writing. And just so we've looked at some judgments, we've looked at some artworks, now to look at the question of writing. And I think what interests me is writing in also as something that we perceive. So you see it, writing is something that's visible, but some writing is also something that you understand, that you read. So writing is a cool thing for me because you see it and you read it. It's the work of hands, especially handwriting. The recognition of individual agency, subjectivity through creativity, the telling of one story. And you can see how I'm slipping dangerously here between these metaphoric and literal senses of um, seeing and understanding writing. So uh, now I turn to Njabula Ndebele, <coughs> the writer. And he prefaces his collection of essays, fine lines in the, from the box, with an enthralling scene. Um, and um, he was at home during the school holidays, bored, and so he started digging in a box in the garage and he found this treasure trove of banned books in his dad's garage. And so then as he starts digging deeper and deeper past all the Milton and the Chaucer, 
um, he comes to down Second Avenue by Eskiampa Lele and Road to Ghana by Alfred Hutchinson and Blame Me on History by Bloke Modisane. Let My People Go by Albert Lutuli. He goes on and on and speaks about all of those. And um, so from this day onwards, the young readers' horizons are never quite the same. Um, the books break in on a world of social and political realities which an apartheid government had excised from that potentially explosive cycle of writing and reading and thinking. And what is memorable for Ndebele the writer, as he relives his boyhood reading of down, reading down Second Avenue and Blame Me on History, is a shock of recognition, an identification with the characters he reads about. And at the same time, an appreciation that racial oppression in South Africa could not simply be subsumed within a universal abstraction, within this generalizing principle that Bernard Williams sees as a problem with the moral philosophy that he's been reading. So Njabula Ndebele says how different they were from one another. It struck me then, he goes on to say, that no matter how much black people suffered under apartheid, they did not experience oppression in the same way. And again, what Ndebele is doing is um, stressing the importance of the subjective and the ways in which literature had an ability to change the ways he himself would think. These books spoke to me with a directness I had not encountered in many school books about South Africa. So, to speak and to hear, to have a voice and to listen, these basic human acts were compromised as the apartheid government slashed its dividing lines between people and the stories they could tell for conversations and narratives to regenerate a sense of self-demanded feats of courage and imagination that would cut across apartheid's segregating lines. So, and just coming back to Ndebele, he speaks about re reading and writing as being two sides of a coin that he wishes to call the art of the fine line. And he speaks about writing and reading as pushing the boundaries of thought. So here again, another moment of recalibrating this sensory field. Um, uh, and at the same time, once you shift what you can see <coughs> and hear, well, that is what enables you to think differently. And so Nbele goes on to speak about this deepening of an intellectual engagement. So, um, but now, just to return for a moment to the Constitutional Court and the artworks. And S Justice um, um, Edwin Cameron, who is still in the Constitutional Court now, and L.B. Sachs, um, they wrote, so, so you can see they're 20 years later than the first democratic e elections in South Africa. Um, they started, they spoke very intensely about the role of these artworks in the Constitutional Court. Um, they say, they went to say they transcend 
the decorative or commemorative. They create moments of empathy that translate abstract concepts into intimate experiences of individual pain and resilience. And empathy is essential, is an essential component of the court's jurisprudence, jurisprudence which is founded in human dignity. Um, rationality is sometimes seen as inimical to art and passion as hostile to justice. They go on to say, the Constitutional Court in South Africa shows how art and human rights overlap and reinforce each other. They speak about human dignity as being that which unites art and justice. And um, I think it's, it's also very interesting when you speak to someone like Edwin Cameron and he takes you around in the Constitutional Court. He, he says, oh, these paintings and these artworks and these beadworks are good for the judges because they, they're exposed to things that they might not think about otherwise or see a colour or see something else. That, and they're, they're absolutely um, uh, passionate in their idea that those artworks in the Constitutional Court are a vital force in bringing about um, fairer judgments or, or more humane judgments in the work, the daily work of the court. Um, all right, and now, uh, but now coming to handwriting again, writing again in its physical sense. Um, part of the old prison on which the Constitutional Court is built um, keeps the graffiti of the prisoners on the walls. So you can see parts of prisoners' graffiti all over in, um, or in parts of the Constitutional Court still on the walls. And when they designed the signage for the new Constitutional Court, um, the person who did this, his name is Garth Walker, he went to the old fort before they um, revitalized the building and he studied and took samples of the graffiti all over and made a font um, for, the, for the Constitutional Court based on the graffiti that he found on the wall. So even the official signage is based on handwriting, on these subjective marks of individual people. Um, and I think in this handwriting, again, what we have is this recognition of a materialization of wanting to say. It is what is unique, but in that we can recognize and read it. It's also something that is shared. So, um, and here is what it looks like on the outside of the Constitutional Court, the official sign of the Constitutional Court. And, but this is my favorite over here. What happened when the, 11, the first 11 Constitutional Court judges were um, first invited to the, uh, uh, or, or first appointed? They asked each of them to write the words human dignity equality and freedom, human dignity, equality and freedom. And as you probably know, South Africa has got 11 official languages. So these words, 
human dignity, equality and freedom were written in these 11 different languages. And Zak Yaqub was one of those people writing. And what they did then is they took these samples of the handwriting and, um, put and cast them in concrete on the lintels above the main entrance door. But <coughs> remember, I, as I said, Zak Yaqub is blind. So um, his handwriting is here. And you can see there the word Siriti Sabota. So he was writing in Tswana um, and writing human dignity, equality, and freedom. And Seriti, Seriti is a, um, a difficult word to translate into English. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I said Tswana, it's a Sutu word. Um, but Seriti, it also means spirit or dignity or um, human essence, all of these things. And um, so then, just to bring the subjective back into things again, the things again, um, because the con the, the everything is designed um, and crafted and handwritten or um, or handmade um, at the court, even the nosings on the stairs. You know what um, those are. So when you've got when you've got a flight of stairs. Um, and you don't want people to slip, and then you have to have little rubbery things over here, or little metal things so that people don't slip. And what they did, so those little nosings on the stairs, they asked a potter, a Ndebele potter, who had done these extraordinary designs on her pots. She designed the nosings on the stairs. So when I was at the Constitutional Court the last time, these designs over here are rubbings from, the, from some of those nosings <laughs> on the stairs. And so I was, so on that page in my notebook, it was when I was listening to Zak Yaqub. And so that's also a source of inspiration because now I'm a fanatic person who takes rubbings of all drains and, you know, <laughs> in Amsterdam, you can imagine all the terrible things that are <laughs> underground in Amsterdam with the gas and water and a dreadful thing called a pale boast, which you must have a look on Google Translate and see if you can understand what it is. But, um, <laughs> but um, it just, it just um, one of the things that I'm interested in now is that we tend also to um, prioritize sight. Um, when it comes to understanding, you will say if you want if you want somebody to understand something, you say, well, do you do you see? Do you get it? Do you see it now? Do you perceive it? And um, but listening to Zakia Kub, it made me realize, well, actually, the tactile or um, being in touch with things in other ways might be just as important to value and to stress. So um, and. What I might also think about is the way in which someone like Desarteau uses a difference between tactics and strategies and these sorts of things. So, um, what this is now just the concluding few words. What possibilities for thinking about a more just future could be opened up by different ways of imagining and representing our individual thoughts and ideals, visions and imaginings in material form, in speech, writing, art, architecture, other forms of cultural production. So here um, is one of the pots that is also at the Constitutional 
coat, and there you can see the designs on this pot. Um, and in what ways could an attentiveness to these material forms help us to understand better the delineations of the societies within which we live? One's mode of saying or depicting or creating things in the world, one's style involves an element of choice, or if you prefer, decision or judgment. Specific subjective commitments materialize in forms through which artists, writers, lawyers, philosophers express themselves. And this is why different modes of saying alter perceptions of what's salient, of what can be seen and heard, of what counts and matters. Thank you. <laughs>